Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Vaishnavi Sundar, the writer and self-taught filmmaker from Chennai. Her most recent film, Dysphoric, explores the social, medical, and institutional construction of gender identity. She writes about women's rights issues in India through her e-zine, and she is the founder of Women Making Films, an international community that endeavors to create opportunities for female filmmakers worldwide. The community runs a publication with essays, reviews, and commentary about the industry. Vaishnavi is also a keen advocate for animal rights, supporting local shelters, and caring for stray animals. Her upcoming film is called Behind the Looking Glass, and it is about the lives of women whose partners, quote-unquote, transition. I welcome Vaishnavi Sundar to Savage Minds. The first film I saw of yours, Dysphoric, which examines the construction of gender identity around medical, social, and various institutional arenas where gender identity has been foisted into government, the NGO sector, or what is called the charity sector in the UK, private institutions, public bodies, public policy. It's eked itself into laws, as we're seeing now with the trials, the very many trials between Kira Bell and more recently, Alison Bailey. We're seeing that NGOs like Stonewall and others have been given backdoor access to government agencies, even the parliament, and have been allowed to enforce what is, in my view, and I think science would agree with me here, absolute hokum. There is no scientific basis for gender. Gender is a, a term that came about at the height of misogyny in the United States. Now, one could say misogyny has always existed, sure. But there was no greater moment for American women who during World War II, finally, many of them were working in factories because their husbands were overseas fighting the fight, they were working, they were rolling up their sleeves in dungarees, working on airplanes, on ballistics, on weapons factories, gunpowder factories. And then when the men came back, they were told to get back in the kitchen. Now, this erupted in a social crisis in America, and this is well documented by historians and social theorists, where these women went into crisis because they were told to get out of the public sector, get back into their house. And what were they given as a reward? Blenders, toasters, new appliances. This is when capitalism took off. This is when commodification of our everyday lives really cemented itself. And these women started to do things like drink and take Valium. There were huge crises emerging in the 1950s that didn't come to light until 15, 20 years later. Again, Betty Ford, that clinic is named after her because she was one of them. And there are many women in the US who are unaware of this because many of these women are running around calling you and I cis women. There are many of these women who are lesbians telling us that gender is between your legs, sex is between your ears. And then you have John Money back in the 50s I would say a rather failed New Zealand physician who tried to make his way in the US by creating this notion that gender is an inherent thing, an entity that these men that came to him and those two children 
whose parents came to him about a botched circumcision, the Reimer boys, their lives were upended by his malpractice, his belief that one could fix a botched circumcision by making this little boy, David Reimer, a girl. There you have him, John Money, saying gender is real because, of course, he had no other choice. He botched what was already an unfortunate situation for those parents and mostly that child and created on the back of that a fiction that really we can fix the medical malpractice of a botched circumcision by turning a boy into a girl. Now, if people sit and think about that, this has zilch to do with even what they call gender identity and has everything to do with medical malfeasance. Take that a step further and he was able to knit together a narrative, bring it all the way up through the 1970s at the Johns Hopkins Gender Clinic, this notion that every one of us inside of us, if we feel like driving a tractor, then that probably means we're in the wrong body. And if men feel like they want to bake cupcakes, well, they're probably in the wrong body. Of course, Vaishnavi, that brings up many issues for the many Chaivalas in India, because wouldn't Chaivalas be right in the home? What would they be? What drove you to make dysphoric, especially in the given context of your country, where many people are not aware of the institutional capture, especially through NGOs? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. We've chatted uh, on and off on uh, Messenger. It's finally fantastic to hear your voice and be able to have this conversation with you. What motivated me towards making Dysphoric was something that happened to me personally. Um, Dysphoric is not my first film. One of the films that I made previously was supposed to be screened in New York. They canceled it because they saw some of the tweets that I had made, which offended them, which apparently was not woke enough. Uh, the tweets that I had made were common sense, according to me. It's just said something along the lines of men can't be in women's sports. There is a reason why there is women only uh, safe spaces, violence, shelters, etc. And there's a reason why men shouldn't be allowed over there. All those things apparently triggered the uh, Indian Desi woke people in Manhattan and they got all uh, riled up and they sent like a really cold email asking me uh, about those tweets, not necessarily asking me, but just sort of condemning me about those tweets and saying that they're no longer interested in collaborating with me anymore. Now, the film in question was about sexual harassment that Indian women face. And it is till now, it's been about four or five years since I've made it till now. It's the only deep dive documentary that has been made on the subject. And this organization that was supposed to screen it called Polis Project claims itself to be a grassroots organization. And if they're very invested in the topic of sexual harassment at workplace, especially in the unorganized sector, my film is all about that. And yet some private tweets that I had made on my personal Twitter became a matter of contention and they decided to pull the entire screening altogether. Now that could have been an opportunity for them to take into account the stories of these women from the unorganized sectors. Perhaps there are groups that are interested in providing some sort of sort I don't know, funding or some platform for these women, you know, to sort of further their activism, further their voice in the difficulty that they face. I mean, it's bad enough to be in an organized sector and I can only imagine the nightmares that is uh, to work in an unorganized sector, especially in a country like India. But I was not given a single opportunity to explain myself. It was just pulled right 
uh, from under my feet. That fascinated me because at that point I was, it, it really hit me. It really hit me. I had like a little bit of a pain in my stomach. It felt really odd because up until that time you've heard other people speak about something like this and then it happens to you. And it is a feeling that is like none other, um, no other experiences that you've had in the past. So I sat and contemplated about the stupidity of their approach to this whole issue. And I decided that I'll write about it. And then I wrote about it. And that brought a lot of Indian trans rights activists to my Twitter feed. And that fascinated me further because those swear words, those uh, anime gifs that they were using, the, the kind of way in which they were trying to put me in place, et cetera, sounded and felt very, very similar to something perhaps you have faced when you have spoken about this, something that say, I don't know, people who are not in Twitter anymore, like Megan Murphy had felt, um, you know, the kind of replies that she would have received. It looked exactly the same, only these are all Indian young woke groups. So I just wanted to explore if this can be so strikingly similar, how deeply entrenched is gender identity ideology in India? And I wanted to dig deeper into that. And that was the starting point of my decision to make dysphoric. And then everything else just sort of, I went along the way, getting people to speak in it and trying to weave in my story in it because no matter what I had to bring, all these things that I was speaking about back home to India about how all this will affect India and how it will affect Global South, etc. And that's what I attempted to do. That's when I reached out to you. When I saw that you were no platformed in New York, I thought, oh my God. And this is the funny thing, because you've seen this on Twitter, where someone, a woman, they don't know her race because it's Twitter, and she says, trans women are men. And someone says, you're a racist. You've seen that. It's just like the most unparalleled critique to make. But then here you are, uh, what Americans call, I hate this term, a woman of color. And then they're laying into you for saying what you said on Twitter, which wasn't even volatile. Compared to die in a fire turf and all the other things you and I and many others have been told, that is what they would say vanilla. So I am very intrigued about the capture that has happened within international NGOs and agencies within the UN, because there is a concerted effort to do several things at once. One, which is to give access to teens, the empowerment narrative that sex work is work. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this within so many of these agencies that are even funded by the likes of George Soros's Open Society, where money is being directed specifically at NGOs to rehash this fiction that one can be empowered by sex work, completely aligning the horrors of what happens to teens who are trafficked, because it's, it's human trafficking. And then you've got parallel to that, these NGOs, which have been pushing gender identity in India. The last time I was in India, I saw it and I went to the NGO personally. I got in my motorbike. I was like, who's paying you to say this? Because we both know this isn't, you know, like pregnant people, pregnant people know women 
And so you have this whole obfuscation of who is the victim of violence, hence your first film, who is getting harassed, who is being targeted. It's not people or people with vaginas or uterus havers or bleeders or front holers and all these disgusting terms that this very misogynist lobby has orchestrated against us. It's women and girls. How do you see the panorama of these NGOs inserting themselves in India specifically? Yeah, it's a huge, huge, huge mafia and the connections go way up. And sometimes going down that rabbit hole is really scary because it haunts you and you have this uh, government bodies or government aided bodies that you think are out there to protect your best interests as female adults. Turns out that they have lobbied along with the very group that erases the word woman itself. So take, for example, UNAIDS, which is supposed to, you know, combat the spread of HIV AIDS in India. And they have this very commendable target of ending it entirely by 2030. Similarly, you have USAID, John Hopkins, Fenway Institute, Elton John, AIDS Foundation, and so on and so forth. These are, the, these are just some of the organizations that I can think of the top of my head, but there are several more. All these bodies that started off with a completely different uh, motivation to enter Indian grassroots have all now channeled their energy. By energy, I mean funds, of course, because they're not necessarily doing anything physically over here. They're just sending money towards the the very the very um, the invention of the transgender child because up until now it was like you know you have to be 18 and over and there are all these protocols and everything and gradually with the help of all these organizations and the money that they are just constantly pumping into the country, they're able to completely blur out these protocols that you've got to be 18 and that you've got to be, uh, of a, of, you've got to have letters from so-and-so psychiatrists and you get like a okay from an endocrinologist. All those protocols are there on paper, but they have somehow managed to evade all that. Uh, you mentioned about sex work and coach, I'm saying this, Melinda Gates Foundation pumped about a million dollars, a million American dollars, sometime in 2013, 14, 15, around about then, to a biggest pimp organization based in Sonagachi, Kolkata. And they're not, obviously, they're not abolitionists, they are pro sex work and they're pro pimp. And this person who used to represent all these groups. Uh, in, in Sonakachi, Kolkata, or elsewhere actually, became the face of the sex work is work lobby, where he would go around American and Canadian universities and colleges and speak to all these big professors and, you know, sociology departments, if you will, to talk about the plight of these women in India who are forced into sex work. But, what really is happening is that he is basically getting all of those people to send all their funds over here so he could continue to 
you know, uh, carry on business as usual. And there was like a brilliant deep dive that my Turkish radical feminist friend called Yamur wrote about, where she sort of went around the world and talked about the various lobby groups that sort of pump in funds. Nobody really knows about it. There's no accountability whatsoever. And what are they using those funds for, et cetera? Um, so in that article, she mentions about this particular group in Sonagachi, and she is still discovering several documents that could potentially prove that there is so much more money that Melinda Gates Foundation has pumped into India towards uh, the, the pro-pimp lobby groups that now have uh, so much money that they have hijacked several FMCG companies that talk about sexual liberation, uh, you know, uh, you have, say, for example, this is how they enter, they, this is how they penetrate the market of vulnerable young girls who are trying to really please uh, the world, uh, gain some social capital, if you will. They're catching hold of FMCG industries and say they take up a product, a, a single product. It could be about, say, makeup. And they somehow tie that into a sexual liberation or some sort of a skimpy cloth clad woman walking about with so much confidence and somehow making that to be like the epitome of uh, womanhood, so on and so forth. And sort of subliminally sending these messages into the minds of these gullible young girls that, you know, sex work is progressive, sex work is work. And that has led them to, you know, use dating websites like Bumble and all of those things I wouldn't know properly use that app as a way to actually do sex work in a way that they are hooking up with somebody, but they're apparently charging um, the men who they sleep with, etc. And this then has expanded now to include trans identifying men who call themselves lesbian and are chasing after actual lesbians into coercing them into dating them, etc. And then threatening them when they clearly say that they're not interested. So the advent of foreign government aided government funds has truly turned this country upside down and for the worse. You live in one of the states with a very large trans lobby. And we wrote about this the other day because I've lived a long time in Karnataka where there was a very firm presence as well. Did this discourse of transgender identity become fomented very easily within India, or was it pretty much uniquely the infusion of international monies that made this happen prior to, let's say, 2000? Did you see a lot of women transitioning and getting a lot of kudos and you're so brave? Because people will say you're brave if there's money involved, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not supposed to say it like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, I do uh, live in Tamil Nadu and there is um, a reasonable amount of trans lobby here, uh, as with Karnataka, Kerala and West Bengal as well. But there's like a nationwide push uh, towards the modern day gender identity ideology thing. But prior to uh, you know, 2000 or whatever, th these things did not exist, like you said. There were no girls who were opting to get a top surgery, bottom surgery, or get a double mastectomy and things like that it was all unheard of. There was a lot of homophobia. There were lesbian women who were, you know, forcefully married off or uh, put through corrective rape. 
and you know subjected to all kinds of trauma many have killed themselves because they can't carry on living this fake marriage etc some have gone on to just resign and um, live their life with a husband and a family and so on to the glory of this family members who are just going around going on about how they were right all along anyway this was pre 2000s um but before all of this i grew up watching this social cultural phenomenon called hijra which is not your modern day transgender thing but it was just several men cross dressing in in female clothes going around traffic signals seeking arms begging basically and i've also noticed these group of uh, in quotes women soliciting at nights you know offering uh, sex work services to men who are passing by especially on high roads and you know this sort of shady corners etc um so that's how that's what i have watched and for me trans was i mean i i did not even know that terminology before i knew them as hijra or in tamil they call them arawani i've known them as that but this whole gender identity explosion if you sort of track back it kind of very comfortably aligns itself in the same timeline as the amount of funding that started pumping into india so in a way both things that you said is true previously 2000 before 2000 this this whole advent of um, gender identity explosion did not happen however there was something called the transsexual transvestite movement these men could be gay or bisexual or just effeminate men or you know could be i don't know some fetishistic autogynophile men it could be anything it's just hard to figure that out but these are men who are sent away from their house and you know they go through this this procedure this cultish procedure they have their own groups and they have to it's a, it's an entire subject worthy of a, of a podcast in itself but to do to, to summarize before 2000 no there was nothing in fact it was only in 2018 that homosexuality was considered not criminal in india we still don't have gay marriage legalized we still don't have other uh, things like you know uh, inheritance or co-owning properties or access to the person in hospital at times of uh, extreme adverse health conditions and things like because they allow only family members and because these people can't get married they they end up being completely cut away from their partners medical procedures and things however this has all, always been there the, the homophobia has always been there homosexuality has been decriminalized recently and somehow the focus has almost entirely been about transgenderism or gender identity ideology about how these poor marginalized trans women are suffering and we need to focus on them just recently on sunday the pride march in chennai concluded you had the likes of you know uh, uh, these um, non governmental charity organization heads sort of holding placards that says trans women are women sex work is work and what have you and the year before that pre covid they even had an entire regiment of people who are also probably trans identifying but held a red umbrella in their hands as if to denote that they are sex workers and the red umbrella is basically an indication to just this uh, symbol that it has come to be representing 
sex workers all over the world. Now, this isn't about sexuality at all. Pride isn't about all of these things at all. And yet pride has become exclusively about all of these things, coinciding with um, the money inflowing to the country or the advent of internet, uh, US popular movies being screened in India, social media. So you can sort of characterize the change by taking all these things into account and you know general access to education abroad where these elite uh, families are able to send their children to foreign universities and they study postmodernism and Judith Butler and all that. I want to say bullshit, but you know, maybe if, if you, oh, agree, you can say bullshit, but, yeah, all of that bullshit. And then they come back and they become editors of website companies. They become professors, they become heads of, I don't know, um, legal fraternity and so on and so forth. And when they come from that, that uh, influence and they see the way things are in India, they're naturally directing themselves towards gender ideology because that's what the US is doing because that's the true marginalized communities that we need to support apparently. And that's how um, the country is at the moment. There are so many provisions that are being made for you know, the quote unquote LGBTQIA plus community, but the true provisions are actually being made only to the single alphabet in that where there are now reservations in employment for transgender. They are now able to ident self-identify as a woman and contest in village panchayat elections as a female under female category where only females are supposed to even contest. They, they contest there and they win it. And they are on newspaper front page on Mother's Day because they say you don't have to give birth to a child to be a mother. You don't have to have a uterus to be a mother. The entire discourse is right now centered around the T and only the T. The fact that homosexuality was decriminalized as of now seems like an anomaly because it's as if that needn't even have happened because they are anyway only focusing on the trans, right? So what about gay, lesbian, bisexual people then? What are you doing for them? Several times activists have uh, brought the case to court about gay marriages. I mean, I mean, obviously all these people are also against the institution of marriage, but there's, India is a marriage country. Everything is tied to marriage. So it makes sense that they're lobbying for it. Several times the courts have just dismissed those cases saying that it's against the law of nature or they cite some uh, stupid uh, uh, religious nonsense and say that uh, they can't permit it. So all, all of these people who are seeking to marry the partner that they love are now transitioning. A lot of our listeners might not know this, but the Prince of Gujarat has been openly gay for some time. And being able to be openly gay in India is directly related to your wealth and class status, right? Yep, absolutely. He's a prince for a certain reason. And I'm sure he got a lot of stick for it despite being probably the wealthiest man of the state, but it takes a certain class of people to be able to come out despite the consequences. Something that people belonging to say lower caste or lower class community uh, people are not, uh, do not have such a privilege at all. And that's why we have so many suicides and we have so many people transitioning these days. 
I'm going to jump back to what you said about hijrah. I went to India for the first time to see my family in 2003. And when I came back from the temple, I told my aunt, oh, I was in Delhi, and then I just went to the temple today, and there's all these hijra everywhere. And she waved her hand at me as if to say, kvetch, no, not that. Now, there are many narratives around the hijra, including the Western academic narrative where books are written about the hijra being these spiritual entities that are very revered within Hinduism. Can you speak to that? Because my aunt's reaction is the more common reaction. The, the reality that these are men who make their living by prostitution. And yes, they are lower class men. Let's not deny that. They're, they're poor. They've been outcast oftentimes for simply being effeminate. Are they really gay or not? That again becomes a very big question mark because the larger myth that's been created around hijra in Western academic studies from anthropology to sociology to cultural studies speaks to a story that most Indians would disagree with. Oh, absolutely. You catch hold of a total random person on the road and ask them if they know what a hijra is. They will, without mincing words, tell you these are men wearing saris. There is no doubt about that. There is no question of pronouns. There is no question of gender identity. So you, the, the lay person in this country knows fully well what sex class these men belong to, which is male. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Now, the common perception of this community is often, unfortunately, very, people are just very repulsed by them because of the way they are very um, loud and, you know, they, they come after you and they demand your money and, you know, they can, they, some of them even choose to flash at you if you deny them money. It's so like a sort of a, a very entitled way of begging or asking you for funds uh, that you don't owe them at all. So they come around if you're parked on a traffic signal, for example, and then they have this ritualistic clap, right? They, they just clap in a certain way and you're just supposed to give them some money and they can get inside any railway station, any train, and they, they just walk through the entire carriages and then they keep demanding money. This has been going on for years and years and years. And these hijras are known to have existed in the Mughal era where you know they they will be emasculated and will be kept as guards in the women's quarters because you can't be a man guarding a women's quarters because you might be a threat to the women and you can't be a man in a way that you might pose a risk to the rulers themselves so they have to emasculate you and put you as in charge of the women's quarters and it it is known that not necessarily Hinduism, but it is also known that um, Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, Allah, had several such effeminate men guarding the sanctum sanctorium. And there are texts written to prove that, you know, there, there are these men who are, um, we don't know if, if forcefully or not, but for generations have been doing this job of guarding the sanctum and you know things like that. So the history of hijra dates way back. There is no doubt about that. That's one. That's literally the one thing the Western academics have got right. Everything else is just absolute, you know, poverty porn, and then this whole Indian, um, oh, 
global south country oh so marginalized oh india you know that's sort of a very weird fetishistic almost condescending patronizing approach to the socio cultural community and they have no idea uh, about the things that these men go through in order to sort of ritually induct themselves into such a community they don't care about their well being they don't care about why they have to put themselves through such horrible trauma of going into some alley and you know castrating themselves just to become part of this community nobody really is talking about that but somehow they have used the existence of these men as adults choosing to live their life this way as a justification to provide puberty blockers to minors now this is a huge leap you know and i think that is what annoys me the most when west basically just uses the whole idea of hijra or for that matter even two spirits if you will and just really i'm sorry to say but jerk off to it in a way that they're somehow they they think they come off as knowledgeable extremely um sort of well versed in indian culture and then they are completely now convinced that because that exists therefore gender identity is real therefore a 3 year old choosing not to wear i don't know pink must be a boy you know that's the kind of leap these people are making and it really really frustrates me what is the age in india where puberty blockers can legally be administered to children it's not legal to administer puberty blockers to children in india at all not for gender identity purposes you know of course there are medical reasons why puberty blockers could be given precocious puberty there's no data around that um, but the only time you are allowed to put yourself through this whole regimen is if you have become an adult that is 18 and above you have to prove that you're 18 and above and you have to meet with the psychologist or whatever and get a letter and go to the endocrinologist get a letter and then you can go to any hospital and they'll give you testosterone shots and you can get any surgery you want because you have now been diagnosed with gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria as they like to call it now and they constantly are very very clever to keep quoting dsm to somehow legitimize uh, all of this because everybody likes to quote some western um thing that has been written by an english man i'm sorry a white man so everybody loves to quote something from the west and then they justify this as well it's a true condition um and it's in dsm therefore we must take it really seriously the thing is um you can't give puberty blockers to children because you have to be 18 and above but the likes of unaids and you know usaid etc are constantly drilling this idea of a transgender child because for them to justify that an adult has always felt this way they have to now invent a child who felt this way who has now become an adult therefore they have to justify children feeling this way now and that's what they're doing they're sort of propagating this idea of drilling gender identity ideology in schools in textbooks there was an attempt at um, introducing the concept of gender identity puberty blockers cross sex hormone surgeries etc for children in primary school onwards uh, with the entire manual was written up by a few people they're not all academics they just trans identified people most of the time uh, most of them are and 
there was no mention about the dangers of administering all these things. It was written in such poetic way as if it is, uh, it could be seen as a way out for every female who hates being female. And given the conditions that are in India for Indian women, why wouldn't, why wouldn't any girl not want to be a woman? In order to justify the existence of adult trans identifying males who claim that this was innate, that they knew, that they always felt this way, much like uh, the homosexuals for whom it is truly innate, but not for gender identity, which is a rubbish term that has been coined by men who basically went after the vulnerability of young adults or youngsters uh, all over the world. This has absolutely no meaning. Gender identity means nothing because gender is a set of stereotypes which has been, well, at least we have always attempted to, feminists have always attempted to abolish such a terminology because it is regressive. It puts women under the box of a certain stereotype which we're constantly trying to break away from. So gender identity has become more mainstream in the past, say five to 10 years in India, and they won't even use the term sex to mean the sex class of people because it still warrants giggles, you know, because of the word, what it also means. People don't say sex, people just use gender interchangeably with sex. And that has then led to complications in terms of language and in law, semantics is the most important thing. They have managed to manipulate bills, laws. When they mean sex, they apparently imply gender. When they, when they say gender, apparently they imply sex. So with all these loopholes, what has happened is there has been a huge boom in the market of people self-identifying as whatever and things like that. And they have made it so desirable, right? They made it seem so... Um, it's the thing that everybody should be right now. That's how they promote it. If you're just, <laughs> like you said in the beginning, if you're just cis female, it's just too vanilla. And much like the flag they have created for us, they have painted us to be this boring, absolutely useless, uh, devoid of any social capital whatsoever, which is probably prudish, you know, all kinds of bizarre things they claim that we are. Therefore, making just being female, somehow not enough. And therefore, children who have access to say social media, at least the privileged families that have access to social media are resorting to, you know, all these forums and social media sites like Discord and Reddit and Tumblr and everything and thinking maybe who wouldn't want to be special? So they're thinking maybe, well, yeah, I can then identify as so-and-so, then um, I can then get all the social capital in school and so on and so forth. I spoke privately, anonymously to this parent whose daughter, 13-year-old, started saying that she wants to self-identify as a boy. She, everybody should call her with her boy's name and she started wearing boy's clothes and everything. The parents are obviously concerned and this is, this is in Mumbai, this is a sort of a privileged family and the school had access to all this information and apparently that, that girl was not the only one who was trying to identify out of femaleness. So they took her to a, to a th therapist to see if the therapist would put some sense into her. Turns out the therapist on the first session 
said that the parents should instantly affirm her, him now, and must get him a pair of binders because it would make him feel very, very comfortable. Now, obviously, I'm using the wrong sex pronouns in quotes. Um, I don't adhere to this pronoun nonsense at all. But that's what the therapist says. And there are just so many therapists right now on social media and everywhere else who are graduating and probably getting whatever bare minimum to be certified to practice, et cetera. All of them have pronouns on their bio are talking about queer affirmative therapy and how if they can come to them and they truly, truly appreciate the fact that the marginalized communities are suffering and they don't have enough money to pay for therapy. Don't worry, I will still see you. You can take a few sessions for free. In a way, they're messing with people's heads, you see. They are trying to say that whatever confusion you do have is actually real and come to me so I can affirm you. Because see, I have pronouns on my bio, so I'm on your side. And this is almost all of these young therapists who are saying, you know, queer, queer community is being, um, I truly don't know if they're just speaking the language of, you know, what's popular right now. And I wonder if they truly think that there are no two sexes and they, if they truly think there are some million genders and everybody is okay and everybody can be whatever they want to be. I don't know if they really think that, but it's almost impossible to have a good faith discussion with literally anybody. So all my tweets, uh, which got me canceled, also got me a lot of blogs from erstwhile friends who happen to be therapists right now, but I can still see their accounts and things. It's all, it's all trans, everything is trans, everything is queer. Even during um, Pride, you, you can't, you might even see the word gay, but not lesbian. And this is also another very painful thing that I want to mention and really um, emphasize on this. The, the concept of lesbianism is very porn influenced in India. And if you say, you're a lesbian, the world perceives you as somebody who they have seen in porn. So young women who are homosexuals, who have, you know, found this person who they've, I don't know, fallen in love with and want to spend their time without being worried about who's looking, who's talking, etc. are not able to do that anymore because you can't call yourself a lesbian anymore in this country. Um, therefore, they have to find a way. To, to be with that person because that's who you love. You can't change sexuality after all because it depends on your sex. It's funny that. So they end up putting themselves through, one of them put themselves through the procedure of gender identity um, tr transformation with the whole spiel of surgery and everything. So they can be together as a heterosexual couple, a heterosexual married couple. It's... It's just heartbreaking to say the least, you know, what, what amazing things women could achieve if same-sex attracted women could just be openly lesbian and bring that pride back into lesbianism and remove the taboo associated with pornography and 
be regular women who say no to pornography and this whole pro porn pro prostitution trans ideology everything is so tied together it's just some days you wake up feeling like um, i don't know it's it feels defeatist all the time it is it, it feels as if why bother why bother what to attack what to unravel what to unpick and you do all that and for what there are probably i don't know 10 other radical feminists who are reading it and agreeing and feeling sad about what's going on in india but the people that are supposed to read it the people that are supposed to discuss politicians um stakeholders in law media they don't want to have any conversation with us whatsoever because after i made this forek i wrote to all of them and some of them were my friends previously all these people in the media i said maybe you'd like to watch it even if you want to rubbish it watch it and rubbish it what will get around people will want to watch the film if you write about it tumbleweed i got zero replies from my friends some of them were just being polite and saying yeah i'll get back to you but they never did this is for someone who un- until this forek i was there in every newspaper if i made a film they really talked about it because it was truly grassroots and but what was she wearing the sexual harassment film is not my first film either before that i have made several films that are sort of rooted on um feminism women centered and things some newspaper some magazine would always write about this write about my work write about my campaigns i ran a campaign uh, against the ban on sale of emergency contraceptives they wrote about it now because i have not, uh, categorically let's say pick the hill they don't want to engage with me on all the things that i have done previously which they benefited from as well which is so heartbreaking because they lobbied with me they shared the petition with me to make emergency contraceptive pills available for females you can identify as whatever the hell you want when you are pregnant and when your rights are taken away everybody knows what your sex is that's what happened in the us a few days ago everybody suddenly knows who a woman is and yet when they want to associate with somebody uh, they have to be very very careful because as a charity organization or an ngo they associate with me there are a lot of people that they're going to piss off and those could be potential funders and they don't want to do that so they have conveniently stripped me off like a bandaid and continue to benefit from the campaigns that i did in the past but want to have nothing to do with me anymore you're listening to savage minds and we hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. You mentioned therapists being trained in this ideology. Now let's just give a backdrop to therapy in India. It's a domain that almost you almost always is used by a certain affluent class you won't find dalit going to a therapist in india you won't at all they they probably won't even understand what it is right and so you've got these therapists and again we can even deconstruct what therapy is i was dying for years to attend this festival just outside of bangaluru 
and I finally did. It's a trans festival. Uh, well, I call it a it's a it's a ritual in a very 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 tiny village, yeah. where people go into trance, they pierce their tongues, and it's right by the Kaveri River, and it was quite beautiful. Now, ethnographically speaking. And I studied under an ethno psychoanalyst, Vincent Crepenzano, who did work on a similar phenomena under the Hamadja in Meknes in Morocco. But trance rituals, trans as in trance, not trans, trance. I'm sorry, God, what a confusion. People often rely on these cultural rituals as a means of therapy. I mean, what the Western might call therapy. But here we have this influx in recent decades in India of Western style therapy. There's a problem, let's solve it. Oh boy. There's a lot to say on that and that's a podcast in itself. But what's interesting to me is that therapists in India, because of the way the social and medical system is created, it's not accessible to anyone. You have to have money to go to a therapist. So are the majority of these young kids who identify as having a trans identity coming from the affluent classes? Unfortunately, no, because on the one hand, there are several of them who are affluent and who are educated and uh, well-versed in all the terminology and know where to get what, and they have the means to get what they want. There is also, and, and I think it's very interesting if you think about it, the majority would still be from a class that is not privileged because they are probably the ones that are trying to evade femalehood more than the ones that are uh, the affluent families. Because if you are a Dalit woman, you, you, you don't want to be a woman, far less a Dalit, right? You want to evade both the shackles that are holding you ba back. And if you happen to be same-sex attracted, it's even worse. So a lot of young women don't come from affluent families but come from say lower middle class families with a history of sexual abuse, domestic violence, abandoned parents, so on and so forth. Those are the women that are being glorified and championed right now because they use them when they want to showcase how truly marginalized they are because they want to sort of amplify that this person's coming from all this poor background and with all this abuse and violence and things like that. But they never talk about the affluent ones for making the case of this being a marginalized community. So the, although the law has mandated that you have to go to a therapist to get this letter of recommendation saying that, yeah, you are truly suffering from gender dysphoria, you, you are now eligible to get testosterone or whatever. There are also different types of therapists that can provide that to you. So just like the general public, there are classes of people, there are classes of people within the uh, mental health fraternity perhaps and they have all this online forums where they can talk to each other if say for example I'm trans identifying and I know of a therapist who kind of gave me a document without much hassle and didn't charge me much I will make sure I send my friends over there so the word kind of gets around and social media is like a huge glue that connects all of these people together and now a smartphone is not very expensive and data is pretty much free. So everybody has a cell phone. 
So the kind of poverty that we're talking about, absolute depravity, that's still a huge population. But I'm talking about the general public that has enough time to even think about gender identity. They all still have smartphones and they have access to internet. So they can, you know, find their ways into saving money and getting their double mastectomy and things like that. The government, does it pay for these quote unquote top surgeries that the word sterilizes what's really going on here? But does the government pay for these surgeries or people really do have to save up for them? Recently, several states have mandated that these surgeries must be available for free in government hospitals, which means you just need these letters from therapists. We know how easy it is to get and a letter from endocrinologists to confirm that you have needing to have whatever dosage of testosterone and you can walk into any government hospital and you can get that surgery. Um, there are some loopholes there and the you know, the state of public um, medical facilities is sort of has a reputation of its own. So people prefer to have some somewhat of a private healthcare because they believe they associate private with somewhat better facility, better care. I don't know. So these people go around saving money to get that top surgery, mastectomy, whatever, in a private hospital. Uh, somehow but the government does provide this uh, offer where you can go to a government hospital and there's just this uh, confusion though but people seem to circumvent just about anything these days in this country but there's just uh, this one thing where if you go to a government hospital to get your surgery done you need to have something called a transgender identity card it's not very difficult to get you need to prove that you have lived your life you constantly felt in the wrong body and you have always been a girl in the on the inside etc etc and you get a you get a card it's not a big deal and you use that and you can get avail these facilities in government hospitals now aside from this there is a thriving community that has always existed in the back alley where other hijra men perform these um, surgeries whatever uh, on other men and they and it, you know, that's, that's ongoing in itself. But now with the funds explosion and everything, government hospitals provide these facilities and there are always private hospitals that welcome you with open arms, um, providing all kinds of, you know, they provide packages actually. They say you do this and this and this and I can give it to you for X amount of money. One other, one other thing I wanted to just say with regards to cost and uh, the, the gender identity ideology. Anti-caste movement has been completely hijacked by gender identity theory, unfortunately, because anti-caste movement um, is, is all said and done a, a class issue. The caste is, of course, a Hindu, Hindu um, invention, but it's, after all, a class issue because based on your economic um, chance of birth, you are subjected to certain brutalities, unspeakable brutalities, you can't opt out of it, you're born with it, you die, you die with it. Now, these people, the anti-caste movement, which I'm also proudly a part of, I am dead against the caste system, but you can't have good faith conversation with anybody in these anti-caste movements as well, because they believe there are more than two sexes too. And they believe that these hijra men who are you know, uh, out there begging and doing prostitution, et cetera, suffer because of economic depravity. Therefore, the anti-caste movement sees that as a caste issue as well. Most of the people that are now, you know, out on the streets, the hijras, if you will, come from 
you know, perhaps one of the lower, so-called lower castes or come from uh, economically impoverished families and so on. Though I am just very openly and categorically against the caste system in India, I can see why the anti-caste movement seems lured towards gender identity ideology because they have made it so that they are alleviating them of that poverty, of all forms of poverty, economical, identity, um, and just, you know, access, social, anthropological, you know, all forms of uh, subjugation. They believe gender ident identity ideology is going to, you know, free them from it. Therefore, the anti-caste movement has been completely just so enthralled by the gender identity movement as well. So a lot of these people who are very prominent speakers, advocates for um, the anti-caste movement in India, all have pronouns on their bio or you know, in Skype meetings, or they actually announce their pronouns in these webinars that they speak at and things like that. Now, that's what really breaks my heart because they should know more than anything else that when shit hits the fan, it is the most impoverished section of the society that is going to take the worst hit. And yet these are the women that are championing gender identity ideology because they believe that it is actually a way of alleviating them from poverty caused because of money or because of one's gender identity or one's sexuality and so on and so forth. So it's such a shame that a truly grassroots movement, which I'm in awe of, the kind of things that we've achieved, the kind of affirmative actions that we could put in place, the kind of fights that we had to wage to get representation in, in say, education, employment, in, in positions of power and things like that. You know, there are, there, there are papers to prove that if you're born in a certain family of a certain caste, you could even be educated and manage to sort of free yourself from the, the, uh, the, the shackle, at least few of the shackles. The malnutrition in the, in the whole family runs for several generations, apparently. So there are children that are born with certain, not defects, but um, so, some issues because for generations, the family belonging to a certain caste hasn't had the opportunity to eat healthy, nutritious food. So this is a very, very serious thing, the caste system is. And they are the ones that are very enthralled by gender identity ideology, and it just truly breaks my heart. And that's what I was trying to add to the previous point that I was making about how it's not possible for people belonging to the Dalit community to say, go to a therapist and get you know, therapy and, you know, pay, I don't know, 5,000 rupees out of their pocket every week. That's not possible at all. And yet there are a number of people that are taken in on, taken in by this. And at the same time, there are advocates who are strongly pro gender identity. Let's switch over to your films. The last film you made deals with gender identity and the institutionalization of it, dysphoric. Can you talk a bit about the reactions to your film in India. You already spoke about people close to you and colleagues. 
was there a wider reception? Because I'll, I'm going to backstory this with the fact that when I was in Bangalore for a gay and lesbian film festival about eight years ago, I had to walk out because the festival was about tea. It was all about trance eight years ago. Yep. Okay. Yep. I believe you. Um, the response were mostly, well, as expected, very hostile. They think I am some uh, ass-kissing Indian woman who wants to get in the good books of white women somehow. You know, that's one accusation that I have on me. The other accusation is that I have no idea whatsoever about the plight of these poor marginalized communities. Excuse me, I have spent my entire life uh, advocating for the rights of the very community that you're talking about. So please don't tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but the funny thing is the kind of, the, the group that refuses to even watch the film, but just shit on it. You know, like this, there are a few people I have peaked in India. I mean, I used to maintain a number, but I no longer have a number, but I have piqued a lot of people by speaking to them about it in a very, very straightforward, sort of emotional, empathetic way by, the, just like the way I've made dysphoric, I've engaged with people in a very, you know, earnest manner. And they have managed to see sense in it and they have turned over to this side and they are now definitely not happy about the fact that men are competing with women in sports, for example, or men getting access to women's toilet, for example. But there are still several more who absolutely can't stand the sight of me. And when these friends who then share it with their friends saying, well, I watched it. I also used to think like you, I watched it. Why don't you just watch it once and make up your own mind? It's made by that bitch. I'm not watching anything made by that bitch. What's the response? Well, they knew you were female when they called you bitch, didn't they? But how dare they assume my gender identity? Yeah, I'm <laughs> asshole. I I'm an I'm a I dick. <laughs> when I saw your film, I was I was quite impressed by it because you address issues that were forbidden when you made it are still forbidden in many parts of Twitter and Instagram. What did you find the biggest challenge in making the film? Because you spoke about right now engaging people sympathetically. Did you think of that when you were making the film? Oh, no, I was raging, raging the entire time. Um, the number of times I had to research and look at uh, botched up surgeries, I had to make several trips to the toilet to throw up come back and start over and you know just keep doing this for days and days and days and listen to the stories of the people that had uh, you know their entire lives taken away by um, the corporations and things like that it is not an easy job to sit down and listen to trauma stories over and over again and the thing is because I have been cancelled filmmakers don't want to work with me so I have taught myself to edit for the most part I've taught myself to even film if it's a very simple uh, shot, I can go ahead and get my own camera and do my own filming. I produce, I direct, I script, I do everything because it's just easy. And I kind of hate dependency in a way that suddenly they might decide that I am the wrong kind of person that they don't want to work with. And I hate that. So I just make matters easy for myself and I do everything, which means while I'm 
while they are narrating their testimonies to me, I'm listening to them, I'm absorbing them, and then I'm editing them, I'm absorbing, I'm doing sound, I'm absorbing, I'm doing color grading, I'm absorbing, I'm doing, I'm just, it comes to a point where you know verbatim what they're saying. And you can just say it along, you can just mouth it along with them because you've heard it so many times. So imagine if this were about a surgery that got so botched up that the person was rendered paralyzed with UTI and this and that. And the very thought was just so overwhelming. Like I said, I had to make several trips to the toilet to throw up. And reading about back surgeries or what happened to them after the surgery was just really, really hard for me because it, it, I had pains in my body um, when I read about things that were done to them in certain parts of their body. So for example, they're talking about mastectomy. I felt like I need to keep a pillow against my breast because it, I could feel like a visceral pain in my body when I was reading those words. So it was overall extremely traumatic to, to put them all together in a coherent sort of way and make it seem like I'm nobody's enemy, I'm not phobic of anything or anything like that. Although truthfully, I was just so, so bitterly angry at, at the way things are. And I wanted to go after every goddamn corporation, hold them accountable. You know, that's the kind of like mad raging anger that I was dealing with. Every now and then I had to take a break and, you know, go play with my dog or watch something in stupid and asinine on TV, <laughs> look at some cute, I don't know, cat videos and <laughs> distract myself and come right back into the center of the hellhole. And I think this is true for basically anybody who's dealing with subjects like this. You are just so emotionally invested in it. After a point, it stops being someone else's story anymore it becomes yours in a way um, not to take away from the pain at all but i'm just saying it's just as hear it so many times you know what they're going to say like you you you, like rachel a detransitioner in my film just love her to bits i i know the words she uses in the entire section of the film the edited parts i can just say it i can be rachel and it was just too much for me at a point and I, I get nightmares and I wake up with cold sweat and I just basically look at the whole world from this lens now and it's not pleasant you can't switch it off once you're in it you can't unsee it so it's it's just truly truly hard but but I think this is the case for almost all of us in this fight so uh, I'm not, not saying I suffer anything special or extra, but I'm sharing my grief in in uh, in dealing with this with all of all of you uh, in a way to say that I understand and this is how I felt, and I'm sure this is true for you as well. Yes, once you get into this debate, it's very hard to turn your back on it. I do work on other subjects. I also think it's very important as a journalist to not focus on just one subject because there's so many interconnections between the pseudoscience behind gender identity and the way it's been built up for 70 years and other aspects of our lives and including misogyny because your film looks at women where most people in Midwest America assume 
transsexual means a man walking around in fishnets and a skirt. When in fact, the data in recent years, especially as you know from the UK, has demonstrated that most of the referrals to gender clinics are now for females and therefore very young females as well. So what choice do these young, mostly lesbians, have of ever understanding, we're talking about identity all the time, but their true identity as a homosexual, as a lesbian, because of a lobby has drip, 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 fed them an ideology that has rendered them objects instead of subjects in their own lives. And this is going to come back to haunt these very institutions, these therapists, and all the pop-up stores that go on around this. You and I could make a killing if tomorrow we want to be voice coaches, right? Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how many people have online been able to cobble together a living by showing men how to act like a woman. And then we all see, when I say we, women, we see very clearly the misogyny in this because we have fought our entire lives, albeit in different ways, depending on our age, our geographical location, that this being a woman is all bullshit. The problem we're facing as well is ideological and historiological in the sense that most people believe that there's A on the left and Z on the right, and we're going towards progress, Z being progress. And we're all moving on this fine line of progress and everything's going forward, but that's not how history works. We have seen this time and time again in the ideology that says that progress continues always forward is simply wrong. Progress is an ideology in and of itself, but we know that human rights have been won and have been rescinded, that women have had the right and fought for the right to vote in countries around the world And now we're seeing that these granddaughters of these same women have to face being fired from their jobs for saying the word woman, for refusing to put pronouns in their email signature, for refusing to attend an HR development training course that teaches them to call their students by the correct pronouns and on and on and on. It's absolutely nauseating the amount of ideological capture that has in many respects, were it not gender ideology, would be considered illegal in these very same countries, right? Imagine attending a workshop where I'm supposed to learn to speak to my students and say the Lord and Savior at the beginning of every sentence. This would be illegal. Yep. But here we are today with professors at universities across Canada and the U.S. being trained in gender ideology and who are reprimanded should they not kowtow to this moronacy. So I I have a lot of unkind words to say about the actors that have been pushing this, but let's talk about them as well. Because in your film, you look at the construction of gender identity, but who, you know, we all know that people pushing this are often women and oftentimes even lesbians. What's up with that? Well, I wish I knew and I wish I could just you know grab them by their shoulder and shake the ideology out of their body somehow but back when women lesbian women were fighting for gay liberation movement they were at the forefront just like the rest of the world lesbians were leading the gay liberation movement they were the ones on the front fighting for equal rights and to remove all forms of discrimination on the basis of same-sex attraction it is true in India as well 
if I just even close my eyes, think about the women that were at the forefront of things back then, it gives me goosebumps. And I have just profound respect for the work that they have laid down for the young girls to now with pride call themselves same-sex attracted. However, you speak to them now and now these are say, you know, 60, 65 year old women who are probably, you know, speaking at some events so and, uh, and, and, you know, attending webinars and things like that are talking about genders in plural. How can, how can you be homosexual when there are a thousand genders? How can, what sex then? You know, everybody has completely lost their plot where this has become a norm and this has become the way to speak. It's as if a cult leader has drilled certain information into the brains of some people who are vulnerable enough or gullible enough or foolish enough to believe in this nonsense. And they are basically just parroting these things over and over and over again. It's like you can, you, you disprove them and let's start all over again. But people have an innate sense of gender identity. It's sex assigned at birth. It's different from how the sex that you were assigned at birth. And these people can parrot this over and over and over again with so many different, um, you know, uh, you know, what do they call it? A sort of a circular definition way. They can just go on and about it all day long. But also I realized the, the feminists that fought for same-sex um, attraction and same-sex marriages and things like that back in the day never not call themselves lesbian. They always call themselves lesbian. But these are the same women who are now old and they're talking about gender identity and gender expression and non-binary. And it baffles me because if you have, if you have been that woman who who was at the front who said same-sex attraction is perfectly normal and fight for the rights of those who feel same-sex attraction. And you can now somehow believe that somebody can feel innately as a man, then they should be so offended because then those women could have identified out of their sex class and become a man, right? How is that palatable for the very women who fought for all these things back at, at that time is something that I can't truly understand. But I would like to speculate. I, I would just like to speculate that, you know, maybe that they now run these charities and they are sort of governed by certain protocols where they're allowed to say what they're not allowed to say basically. And they're just reading a script and that's that they're sort of tied perhaps. Several women who used to be very active back in the day, nobody really knows where they are. It's probably been their 70s now, but nobody really knows where they are because there is no recorded, not a significant recorded history. And if somebody was same-sex attracted back in that time, they would try as much as possible to hide that history or to burn, the, erase that history from the face of the earth. So you can't even backtrack and sort of try and log them back, bring them back to life, so to speak, by speaking about them in a way that you should be speaking about them as two women who fall in love with each other, who are same-sex attracted. This is not some gender identity. This is not some gender bullshit at all. 
but there is no way to do that because um, everything seems captured right now. And I don't know what to say about it. I don't know about the women that are also propagating this. The reality is that in India, and you see this even in Delhi, you know, you have one of the best universities in the world there, public university. And a lot of people coming from that university are well scripted in gender ideology. It's almost as if, like you said earlier, if you say something that's coming from a Western institution or a Western philosophy, that will carry more credence than anything coming straight out of India, which is, you know, part of that process of the decolonization of the mind, which many postcolonial theorists have critiqued. But you see it front and center with this ideology, especially. And it's not like uh, they don't know. Uh, of writers, Dalit writers, proficient uh, writers who have written so many books and essays on the plight of Dalit women, the plight of women belonging to other lower castes, uh, where they don't have any confusion about the sex class they're talking about. They know that these are women that were raped by men belonging to the same caste, by men belonging to the upper caste, by men anywhere in the horizontal vertical trajectory of caste. It didn't matter. It was women that were getting raped. And these women have written about it, talked about their personal stories, talked about the stories of other women that they know. They have logged this information for eternity, for perpetuity, so that people can read it and understand how horrifying it was for women back in that time. What these people from these elite BU, uh, Delhi University type elite crowd is doing now is they're trying to be all anti-caste about it, but with a woke spice added to it now. So they're talking about all these writers from, uh, that, from that time and they talk about how of course, if you juxtapose that with the current times, we will have to take into account the fact that, you know, they're not all um, uh, women are female, you know, that sort of a thing. They, it's, I think, a colossal insult to all those women who have written about this, who've written about um, the plight that they faced because they were female, to be humiliated by these young twats standing in front of a classroom with uh, such privileged people to say something about you know ideology gender ideology now by juxtaposing the stories of those women from that time i think it's a huge disservice to the very cause that they are trying to claim into fight uh, and i think it's a shame that academia has turned into something like this i have personally lost the last morsel of faith in the education system in india right now yeah, well, there's no wonder with what's going on. Your forthcoming film, Behind the Looking Glass, examines the lives of women whose partners have transitioned. That's coming out early next year, correct? Yeah, uh, hopefully early next year, if not mid next year, because there's a lot of stories that are shared with me anonymously. So there's quite a bit of work that I need to do in terms of presenting those stories visually. So I'm resorting to so many different mixed mediums like animation, illustration, and things like that. So that takes a lot longer than just putting all the testimonies together in an edited way like I did for Dysphoric. You know, for Dysphoric, I did have animation. Those are still separate tracks. Here, I have to animate the very character itself because I can't show her face. But yeah, it's the story of women whose partners, whether they were married or not, 
They go by the common terminology called trans widows. Uh, almost all of them are comfortable using that phrase. So I think I will use that now to explain. Um, but not all those women who are trans widows were married. Some were partnered, some were dating and um, it's a collection of the stories of these women, uh, the experiences that they had in the hands of the men who now claim to be women. And this is a story of, the, of all those partners whose stories are not brave and stunning enough for the mainstream media to talk about, even though marriage requires two people and somehow they are only focused on the story of men who are now wearing women's clothes are and, and are in the front pages of magazine covers and things like that. So uh, to make this film, it's very simple. I need to just make a, a log in history uh, for future that something like this happens. It's extremely grotesque what these women go through. And this is how I preserve it, you know, in a sort of a stained glass sort of way. Like it's, it's going to be there for eternity. And, Later on, like a decade later or two decades later, when we look back, this will serve as a, much like dysphoric would, this will serve like a, I told you so, from all of us women who are standing head on against gender ideology. I've been, I've been talking to a lot of women as well over the years, just because of writing on this. I get contacted by women whose spouses have left them and they are left in the wallpaper, while these men are being applauded, supported, even given money, privately fundraisers. I mean, that was another issue. I wondered if Indians are also doing fundraising to pay for their surgeries, because that's a thing. And these women are being left to care for their children, often with no financial support. And these men are not being looked at as if they were truck drivers who left their wives where that's really frowned upon. But no, because they're women, nothing is set. They're just left in the wind, these women, no representation. So I'm most excited to see your film. Can you speak a bit about what you're finding already with your pre-production research and then in production as well? To answer that question about Indian fundraisers, yes, it's, uh, you know, the social media, sorry, the crowdfunding sites are riddled with uh, requests asking money for top surgery and bottom surgery and what have you. Um, there are so many such websites actually where you can fundraise and almost all of them, and why won't they, um, are happy to let people raise funds for irreversibly making these surgeries on their body. Anyway, initial findings um, is that it, it could be that all these women are just one woman because some of the experiences that they've had in a sort of a broader sense is also similar. And I think I can also say that it could be that all of these women's husbands were that one was was that one guy because all of them also exhibit something very very similar and easy to easy to expect from a man who's narcissistic in nature for example who's gaslighting you who's abusive in nature who turns himself into a victim at the drop of a hat and makes you the villain for any any misdeeds that has happened in his life and so on and so forth so when these women are narrating the stories about their respective husbands i'm thinking 
but this is exactly what i heard from that woman this is exactly what i heard from that woman and the woman before that and the woman before that and this is not to say that their abuse is any less traumatic or not to take away from any of the horrible things that these women had to suffer in the hands of these men but it's uncanny how these men are behaving in a sort of a almost embarrassingly templated way and the plight of the women for the most part is also the same you know like you said left alone on their own no child support no help nothing but um, the man's going forward and living this sort of a flamboyant life with um, you know modern clothes and accessories and what have you a, a kind of life that you know um, only certain people can afford and you can clearly see where the money is going into in the family definitely not towards child support so what's really striking to me also that the women have come, that have come forward to speak with me are just so amazing i mean i am biased i feel that way about all women overall but these women the way that they have managed to come out of it in a sense i mean the trauma is going to be lifelong but they are so formidable that they are able to now talk about this experience in a way that their one goal is to warn other women of such a such an experience that they could potentially have because none of these women claim that they like saw it coming in a sort of crystal clear way there were doubts here and there but you won't you didn't have the vocabulary for it now you have the vocabulary for it so i think it's the most prescient topic to make a film on and make people aware and it's really i think enduring that most of these women have only one objective for for allowing themselves to be in this film is to help other women and it's unanimous uh, amongst all of them and it's also a way in which they're dealing with what has happened to them and to tell themselves by telling the world that it's not their fault um so i think all those things have been really really striking to me and in the film i'm also trying to make a very categorical difference between partners of lesbians who leave them to become a man in quotes uh, and i want to categorically say that the motivations behind why women transition versus the motivations behind why men transition is completely different because i often get this a lot whenever i make a film on the subject i get a lot of what aboutisms when i made sexual harassment film they were like about what about the men who get sexually harassed when i made this for it they're like what about the men who transition so i am trying to sort of once and for all answer that question by also including aspects of the motivations behind lesbian women opting to transition out of femalehood which is nothing about paraphilia or perversion or a fetish um that 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 history is extremely traumatic and i have made sure well i i will make sure that i very clearly mark the distinction there because i think it's very important um but other than that uh, the other findings have been some of them have been extremely nauseating uh, uh, the things that these women are subjected to in the bedroom and in general the most humiliating things that they had to go through and they couldn't say no and i mean we had to take breaks you know during recording the conversation it was just too much and they 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 marched on they all shared their story and they 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 ended the discussion by ensuring to me that they are somehow in a if not way better but definitely 
a slightly better place than they were when they were going through all these things. And I think that alone will be such a redeeming factor for anybody who's listening to this, who's in a situation now um, to feel confident that there is some sort of a support system out there because all those women who are stuck in it now are still only seeing, seeing the stunning and brave story of these men who transition into being female. So this will be a nice antidote to all the mainstream cacophony. In the bigger picture, of this gender identity movement, we're seeing the ship being turned around in the UK. On the other hand, in places like Canada, which some feminists call Tranada, it's far from being over. It's really embedded. And it's it's quite frightening when you think of how many years it's gonna to take to unroll that. In the US, as we've seen this past week, all of a sudden, Amy Goodman, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! and other NGOs know what a woman is, but then they've reverted to saying, from saying woman to pregnant person all over again. Now you can tell who's being hand slapped in their social media back hubs saying, you can't say women, you have to say pregnant person. So now there's a plus, I'm writing a piece right now about this, there's a plethora of tweets and other social media feed defending the rights of pregnant people. It's, it's really frustrating to see on the one hand, the human rights abuses of vulnerable people, women, children, and yes, men. I'm not less sympathetic to men in, in many respects, but I am in the sense that I see the lobby that's driven this is focusing on women and children. And that cannot be eclipsed by any other statement. So when you see what's going on and you see the ACL effing you and planned parenthood planned parenthood pregnant people no i don't want them in charge of resuscitating my access to abortion i want an organization that knows what a woman and girl is and is not afraid to say it because as you said earlier if you can't name something you can't defend that group so it's a very clever tactic to have a lobby that has erased our ability to legally in some cases and structurally in most cases say the word woman and girls because then you know that person will be accused of transphobia now tell me in india with the average person this does not fly and india is a very large country so are there any spaces that are safe for women for lesbians for gay men are people in parts of the gay community pushing back now no, all of them now self-identify as queer. Anybody who's anybody at all who you can find out about because of their public presence in, say, during Pride Month or during any LGBT-related conversation, there are some very prominent faces that you sort of see repeatedly, not just in my state, but across the country I'm talking about. Um, it's... Uh, it's really baffling how nobody is challenging it in a way that could harm that public that that public presence within the fraternity. In a sense, so if they were to condemn gender identity, they would no longer be invited, and they know it. So they won't necessarily talk about how gender identity is bad. Perhaps they will limit themselves to talking about just generally about same-sex attraction or something like that uh, without really, it's sort of a knuckling under methodology where 
they'd rather not talk about it because they don't want to piss people off and they don't want to not have the social capital. Um, but at the same time, but I think it's very disingenuous because those the 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 T is basically trying to hijack the rest of the alphabets, and if anything, it should enrage them, but it doesn't. And you have media websites that use the similar jargon like pregnant people somehow um, you know to, uh, testicular cancer they have no doubts about who it comes to you know it's always men and men's prostate and men's this men's that um, but when it comes to breast cancer or uterus or something to do with pap smear it the language just gets muddled up instantly and the fact that they are all sort of going hand in hand with this in the sense media is writing about it it creates a public perception there's public perception and it sort of adds on to the media's desire to write more about it so they sort of feed each other and create and they have created this monster right now where in a way they have made this a norm you have so many social media handles that constantly call out transphobia and uh, call out people who are speaking out against it. They some, Somebody dedicated an account to screenshot the tweets that I have made to say, go, go, go block, go, um, you know, report and things like that, but nothing happened. Um, but there are people who are going after you. The thing is about the language, right? What they're doing in India, just like the rest of the world is, they are making you constantly spend all your time in clarifying what a woman is they are not letting you go past that stage and actually fight for women you understand what i'm saying like the the movement of, against gender ideology has become about clarification no 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 i'm not transphobic i just want safe spaces for women no 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 i am pro women no 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 i i just think that you know we need to have a word otherwise medically there's all kinds of problems that in the future we could experience where already there is very little data about a female body female anatomy we need to be mindful of that etc et you're constantly clarifying your rather than completely marching over them, daring to stand on top of women's bodies and claim it as their own, uh, and then move forward and get those rights, you know, so I think that's their, like, just this extremely sinister uh, strategy, which is working really well, because all most women are doing who are, who are you know, who are critical of this there aren't many but whoever is they are constantly having to say well i'm not transphobic but you don't have to say that you don't have to ex explain yourself for standing up for your rights the very word is being taken over it must piss everybody off but it doesn't because everybody's afraid so rest of india sorry uh, rest of the world is taken over by it india is no different we're probably just two or three years uh, behind there are going to be people with more botched up surgeries, there are going to be deaths, there are going to be younger and younger children, girls especially asking for um, a, a penis, if you will. And it's going to freak the majority conservative uh, Indian society. And at some point they are going to re retaliate. The only unfortunate thing though is the objection to all of this right now, at least a loud objection is coming from a religious motivation, which is 
worrying because just like in the US, if you stand against gender ideology, you are equated to being some sort of a right-wing Nazi or something. We, in India, we, we can't even call ourselves purely left and right. It's not possible. One, we have so many different states and each states have their own autonomy. It's not always a federal decision with everything. So sometimes in a country, sorry, in a state, there can be two parties that are both left and they're in opposition to each other. And that's very, very possible in a country like ours. And in majority of the states, sometimes it is the, it is the case. So there is no right-wing, left-wing bigotry here whatsoever. It's just about how successful or how powerful a lobby is in a state and has managed to capture all these industries successfully that they can mo move on and start manipulating uh, law. That's what they're doing. In Karnataka, several of these um, industries have been captured. Law has been entirely captured. That is, um, as we speak this month, at some point, there is going to be a hearing uh, made by, of the case made by a trans-identifying male who has demanded that across the state, all hostels be made gender neutral. He made a case for it uh, last month and there's going to be some sort of a hearing during this month or the coming month. And if they win, it is because of the successful lobby of the lawyers, a group of lawyers, a group of corporations is pumping money into the whole um, endeavor and everything. So it really comes down to that. Nobody is right wing, nobody is left wing in this country anymore. You can be liberal in your politics or you can be conservative in your politics, depending on your notions on abortion and homosexuality, so to speak. That's like barely the classification you can make about people. But it's really stupid how these Indian idiots on social media call you a right-wing Nazi uh, when they don't even they don't even probably understand. Probably never picked up a book and read a page. That parrot, whatever abuse the foreign TRAs are saying. So India is catching on and. It comes down to how many people are driven enough to make this the priority across the state. It's not very far that it's going to take complete precedence over the rest of the assets where it already has.
Thank you.